DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, building a strong case. Could Putin really face prosecution in The Hague for the invasion of Ukraine? Burned out and broken, but will France learn anything from the latest burst of violent protests? In 2018, the former environment minister Borloo came up with this huge plan for the suburbs, tens of billions of euros. But at the last minute, Emmanuel Macron then decided not to implement it. And we visit the volcano in southern Italy that could be the closest to erupting in nearly 500 years. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. This is not special operation. This is civilians. This is genocide of the Ukrainian population. And that's exactly what Russian regime, Putin's regime, Russian army is doing. Killing the civilians with the tight hands behind their back and with a shot in their heads. Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko there describing the scene in the Ukrainian town of Bucha last April, where hundreds of civilian bodies were found shortly after the withdrawal of Russian troops. In the weeks after the grisly discovery, Ukraine called for the setting up of a special international tribunal to investigate war crimes by Moscow. Some 15 months later, last Monday, a new office opened in The Hague that seeks to do just that. The new International Centre for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression Against Ukraine features prosecutors from Kyiv, the European Union, the United States and the ICC. And as Terry Schultz reports, the office will investigate and gather evidence for any future trial that could bring Kremlin and Russian military figures to justice. International investigators are gathering evidence under fire to eventually prosecute Kremlin leaders for launching war on Ukraine. One of those avenues is by trying decision-makers on the crime of aggression. Planning, initiation, or execution of a large-scale and serious act of aggression using state military force is easier to prove than other war crimes. That doesn't make it less significant. Ukrainian Prosecutor General Andriy Kostin calls the crime of aggression the original sin. Commission of which opened the floodgate for 100,000 of other international crimes, including targeted killing of civilians, sexual violence, torture, forcible displacement of civilians, including of children, looting and many others. It is paramount to display our preparedness that accountability for the crime of aggression is a central tenant of our political legal and moral agenda. The new International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression, or ICPA, which opened Monday, hosts 20 prosecutors from Ukraine, the Baltic states, Poland and the U.S., supported by the European Union, the U.S. Department of Justice, the International Criminal Court and national governments. It's based at Eurojust, the EU's judicial cooperation headquarters, which has already established a central database where evidence from multiple investigations inside Ukraine will be collected, stored, translated, and shared among different countries and agencies. Eurojust President Ladislav Hamrin says the ICPA is an important next step, one he says is unprecedented in legal history. The key purpose of uh, having the International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression is to secure crucial evidence, start building up the case already now. 
Uh, we don't want to wait until the end of uh, the conflict. Uh, we decided that we will support our partners which uh, uh, started their own national investigations and we will uh, centralize already available evidence, analyze that evidence and also identify possible evidentiary gaps. Kip Hale has worked with international tribunals in The Hague and now serves as an advisor on atrocity crimes to the Ukrainian government. He agrees the center is significant, but says it has a lot of roles to play. Seeing so many countries band together to create the center and do so on a quick fashion and on, on an issue as, as important as the crime of aggression is a remarkable feat. However, the true significance of the ICPA will be measured by how well it interacts with other national and international entities that are investigating the crime of aggression, how well it spurs on the creation of the international tribunal that the Ukrainians want and that will create a strong uh, deterrence for future aggression, and how well it will spur on the accountability of aggression around the globe, not just in Europe. Trials for the crime of aggression are already underway in Ukraine. Several other European countries intend to themselves prosecute those individuals, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, who are directing the war. At the moment, the International Criminal Court, the ICC, cannot try the crime of aggression against Ukraine because Russia does not accept the court's jurisdiction. EU Justice Commissioner Didier Rinder says there must be an international tribunal created. For the moment, you know that we continue some discussions about the creation of a jurisdiction where it will be possible to organize a trial about the crime of aggression, a dedicated tribunal. We cannot tolerate the gross violation of the prohibition of the use of force, one of the fundamental rules of the international rule-based order and a bedrock principle of the UN Charter. Renders says the European Union is looking into ways the ICC rules can be changed to support Ukraine and deter future aggressors. In the meantime, forensic and judicial experts will continue preparing to convict Russian decision-makers. The first time in history, authorities say, that so much evidence is being gathered while the crime, the war, is still underway. Terry Schultz, DW, The Hague. This week, the Ukraine war has been overshadowed by the riots across France that erupted following the fatal police shooting of a teenager of North African origin. After more than a week, the violent protests do appear to be abating. But the fallout may be deep and lasting. The riots have left the country's president, Emmanuel Macron, weakened. And deepened divisions over long-standing issues of discrimination and integration in the country's poor immigrant-heavy suburbs, known as the banlieue. Lisa Bride reports from Paris. It seems like a throwback from earlier days, protests against police violence targeting ethnic immigrant youth from low-income suburbs quickly spiraling into violence and nightly clashes with police. That's been the scene in France, and 17-year-old Nahel Merzouk was shot dead as he drove off during a police traffic check in the Paris suburb of Nanterre. The officer who shot him has been detained and charged with voluntary manslaughter. But the violence has continued, even though Nahel's family has appealed for calm. 
This is an old story in France. The country was rocked by riots in 2005 following the death of two youngsters fleeing police. Like Nahel, they were children of immigrants from North or Sub-Saharan Africa. Their death sparked soul-searching about police violence, discrimination, and state neglect of France's poor and ethnically mixed suburbs. But critics say nothing has fundamentally changed. A few years ago, tens of thousands of French joined global protests over the police killing of George Floyd in the United States. Many again drew parallels with France. We have an adolescent who has been killed. It's inexplicable. President Emmanuel Macron has called Nahel's killing inexplicable, but also denounced the ensuing violence as unacceptable. Last week, he cut short his time at a European Union summit in Brussels and postponed a state visit to Germany. Observers suggest today's crisis risks diminishing his influence abroad, but especially at home. And many agree this is a crisis feeding long-standing debates over immigration and integration in France. Some right-wing figures have added fuel to the fire. A senior conservative senator claimed protesters of immigrant origin had undergone a regression to their ethnic roots. Leftist lawmakers labeled him racist. Far-right politician Eric Zemmour called the riots an ethnic war, while another linked the violence to a, quote, insane immigration policy. The government notes most arrested for violence were born in France. A fund for the family of the accused police officer has raised far more money than that for Nahel's family. The fundraiser claims the policeman was just doing his job. As France's divisions widen, some suggest there may be one clear winner. Marine Le Pen of the far-right National Rally Party, who came second in last year's presidential elections. She's kept somewhat above the fray, but says Macron won't be able to stop the wildfire. Lisa Bryant, DW, Paris. Now, there's something quite unique about the propensity of French people to make their feelings known in the most public, angry way. The country is certainly no stranger to violent protests. Earlier this year, France was rocked by fierce demonstrations over plans to raise the retirement age. The Yellow Vest protests a year before the pandemic brought life in several cities to a complete halt over the rising cost of living. And as we just heard from Lisa, in 2005, riots erupted for three weeks after two young men died of electrocution while trying to flee from the police. I asked Inside Europe's other correspondent in Paris, Lisa Louis, what made these riots different from the others. Over this week or so, according to the police, 722 officers were injured. So there is something unprecedented about this when it comes to the nature of uh, the violence that we could see in the streets over the past week or so, because apparently they're using fireworks, they're ambushing police, they're blocking the roads, they're really quite aggressive towards the police. What's also different is obviously that, you know, one sociologist told me this is like Francis George Floyd moment. Here we have a video of the incident that happened on Tuesday last week, where this 17-year-old young man was shot by police. And the police, in the beginning, they were saying, you know, it was self-defense. 
But a few hours after the incident, the video was published of the incident, you could very clearly see that the police officers were not standing in front of the car, but right next to it. And that really triggered all the underlying anger that was there because people in the suburbs, especially young people, feel badly and unfairly treated by the police. They're being controlled on a constant basis and they just feel that they're the scapegoats of the nation and all that resentment then erupted. At the same time, unrest in the French suburbs is nothing new, is it? There's always been a lot of discontentment among immigrant communities to their treatment and general standard of living. But has France made improvements in this area? There have been numerous plans for the banlieue in the past with billions being invested in these areas. But it doesn't seem like it really led to many results. I mean, there are some areas where obviously things have gotten better. But, you know, one point, for example, is the police and how they are patrolling. There used to be local brigades who knew everybody in the area. But these brigades were taken away. You know, this daily contact between the police and the people who live in these areas is no longer there or hardly there anymore. The Macron government, they had launched some kind of... A review process into this and there was tens of billions of euros in 2018 the former environment minister Borlo came up with this you know huge plan for the suburbs but at the last minute Emmanuel Macron then decided not to implement it obviously his government has been saying in briefings over the past few days I've been listening to that we have done a lot of things for the banlieue. We have renovated uh, various areas. We, have, we are constructing new metro lines. But what happens in these cases is often people who already live in this area are then pushed out because the rents are raised and so they can't afford that anymore. So it's not like the structural problem is being resolved. Now, severe and long-lasting riots like these must be perfect fodder, the far right, for those politicians like Marine Le Pen who say that multiculturalism in France hasn't worked. Have the far right seized on this crisis? I've talked to a few experts exactly on that topic and they were telling me, you know, when you look at what Marine Le Pen, the former presidential candidate of the far-right party, she wasn't the most extreme politician. Actually, Eric Ciotti, the head of the Republican Party, which is centre-right, or supposed to be centre-right, he was quite quickly asking for a state of emergency and Marine Le Pen hasn't asked for that yet. Her strategy is to appear quite soft so that those who feel insecure and anxious about you know what has been happening over the past few days they can then turn to her thinking that she's standing for the party that stands for law and order while not being too extreme so that people can't vote for her anymore we haven't seen any polls yet on what the effect of the riots are on voters intentions but pundits, political analysts here, think that it's quite likely that the far right will benefit from the situation. So finally then, Lisa, if there are no polls, what would you say is mainstream France's opinion on these events of the last week or so? The people I've been talking to are kind of split between two things. On the one hand, they say it's clearly not acceptable what happened last Tuesday. But on the other hand, we can't accept rioters in the suburbs either. There's a lot of concern here about what to do about this situation. It doesn't mean necessarily that most French would vote in favour of extremist parties. 
but it just adds to a level of anxiety that was already quite high with the cost of living crisis and after coming out of the COVID pandemic. And also, obviously, if you look back just a few weeks ago, uh, these uh, huge waves of protests against a pension reform that would push up the minimum legal retirement age from 62 to 64, that's just creating an atmosphere of worrying and anxiety that this current situation is feeding into. Lisa Louis there, Inside Europe's correspondent in Paris. Still to come, Italian scientists calculate the odds of a major volcanic eruption near Naples. You can get in touch with us and give feedback on any of the stories you hear. Drop us an email to insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. The eruption of Mount Vesuvius that destroyed the Roman city of Pompeii some 2,000 years ago is the stuff of legends, but the chances of a similar, even worse disaster could be higher than we think. The Campi Flegre, an active supervolcano close to the Italian city of Naples, is showing a lot of activity at the moment. There are earthquakes every day and researchers from the Italian Institute of Volcanology and University College London say it could erupt. That could potentially impact around 3 million people. Angelo van Schaik visited the caldera to find out how locals are preparing. In case of an eruption, people have to gather at a special gathering point. Pepe Rensuto was born and raised in this area. He lives 20 kilometers west of Naples in Pozzuoli, which is basically on top of the Campi Flegrei caldera. But he's not particularly worried. If there is an alert, it means you have to leave. Then you have to gather at the assembly point, a few hundred meters from our home. That could also be during an eruption as eruptions are difficult to predict, just like earthquakes. But I'm not really worried. I know the volcano is always monitored. The Campi Flegrei, literally the burning fields, is a so-called supervolcano. Its caldera has a diameter of 15 to 18 kilometers and consists of around 40 smaller and bigger craters. The Campi Flegrei lies partly underneath the city of Naples at the nearby Bay of Pozzuoli. And according to Giuseppe Mastro Lorenzo, volcanologist at the Italian Institute of Geology and Volcanology, INGV, it is very unpredictable. The Campi Flegrei could explode any time. We monitor the volcano constantly, so we know what happened a millisecond ago. But we can't predict what will happen in the next millisecond. The volcanic system is simply too complex. Gian Poriodori di 
the, uh, the sofa. sofa seat. Here, on the stairs of the professor's apartment building in Pozzuoli, you can already smell the sulfa coming from the Solfatara, the Campi Flegrei's most famous crater. We're heading there, though it's been closed to the public since the family fell into the crater and died a few years ago. Every month, volcanic activity here causes the earth to rise about 50 millimeters, resulting in dozens of earthquakes each day. This is the Solfatara, the most famous crater of the supervolcano, a white limestone bowl with yellow sulfur spots and loads of vegetation around the sides. But it's only one of the many craters, says volcanologist Mastro Lorenzo. Every eruption creates new craters and a new eruption could create craters in the city of Naples. The big eruptions occurred a long time ago. 30,000 years ago, the Campi Flegrei flooded this area with lava and created the peninsula on which Pozzuoli is now located. The last eruption was in 1538, when the volcano created a new mountain within a few days, the Monte Nuovo. Before that eruption, the earth also swelled, just like what's happening now. In Rione Terra, the ancient Greco-Roman neighborhood of Pozzoli, you can see what the volcano is capable of. Its little harbor is almost completely dry because the level of the earth has risen so much. The few boats in the harbor are stuck in the mud. Back in 1972, the earth level rose dramatically and Rione Terra was quickly evacuated. 5,000 families were moved elsewhere and never came back. Is there now a need for another evacuation? Volcanologist Mastro Lorenzo. Actually, we don't know. At the moment, there are two different theories about what's happening. According to one, the swelling of the earth is caused by magma pushing up towards the surface. The other says the porous soil is filling up with gases and fuels like a sponge. Those are two different models on which you cannot base an evacuation plan. Gennaro, a local, is eating an ice cream watching the waterless harbour. He has his own theory about Pozzuoli. Pozzuoli is like how they made bread in the old days. You prepare the dough, you cover it up and it starts to rise. It can continue to rise, it can collapse or it can explode. We don't know. The Campi Flegrei Caldera is a real threat to Naples and its surroundings. But no one really knows how big a threat. The next eruption could be a small one like the one 500 years ago when just a handful of people died but it could also be a big one, like the eruption 13,000 years ago, which changed the map of Italy and deposited ash as far away as Russia. That would be catastrophic, killing hundreds of thousands of people and impacting climate change in Europe and maybe beyond. And scientists say it's not a question of if an eruption will happen, but when.
Lorenzo Paulassa. Angelo van Schaik, DW, Potswoli, Italy. Now, the best way to ensure you never miss an episode of Inside Europe is to remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, the Dutch king apologises for the horrors of slavery, but have the chains truly been broken? Erdogan digs in his heels over Sweden's NATO membership. Orkney wants autonomy, but could the Scottish island's Nordic links really be more fruitful? We have a far more Nordic approach, consensual politics, where we all have something to contribute, and then we look for a consensus rather than do it by strong, divided lines and a kind of battle to get to the other end of that. Athletes from one of the oldest Olympic sports prepare for the Paris Games in Cuba, and Hollywood comes to Chechia as Central Europe's top film festival returns. Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. July the 1st was the 160th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in former Dutch colonies. Over the course of 200 years, the Netherlands enslaved an estimated 600,000 people, moving them by ship mostly from Africa to its Caribbean and South American plantations. The anniversary was marked by a formal apology by the Dutch king for his family's role in what he said was the suffering of hundreds of thousands of people. King Willem Alexander told an event in Amsterdam that of all forms of bondage, slavery is the most degrading and inhumane. His apology echoes one made by Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte at the end of last year. Fernand van Tetz reports on how one of the world's largest former colonial powers is atoning for its past mistakes. Irvin Vient was born and raised on a former plantation in Suriname, South America, a Dutch colony at the time. This is my grandmother, born in 1884. This is my grandmother, who was born in 1884, and her sister, who was born in 1881. His grandmother was the first generation to be born out of slavery. You can say you haven't experienced it yourself. I haven't experienced it. But I can tell you that when I watch films like 12 Years as a Slave, I really experience it as if I was there, because I could have been that man. So for many people, it's a way of reliving it. 
Irvin has spent his life fighting to get the Netherlands to recognize the suffering of his ancestors. The Netherlands officially abolished slavery on the 1st of July 1863, one of the last countries in Europe to do so. That event is commemorated each year in a festival called Ketikoti, the breaking of chains. Last Saturday, the Dutch king, Willem-Alexander, became the first royal to apologize for slavery, asking forgiveness for a crime against humanity. Wij dragen de gruwelijkheid van het slavernijverleden met ons mee. The horrific legacy of slavery remains with us today. Its effects can still be felt in racism in our society. On the 19th of December last year, the Prime Minister apologized on behalf of the Dutch government for the fact that for centuries, in the name of the Dutch state, human beings were made into commodities, exploited and abused. Today, I stand before you. Today, as your king and as a member of the government, I make this apology myself. The fact that the king apologized is especially important for Owen, an acknowledgement of his own family's role. In Suriname, zeggen ze dus dat koning Willem. In Suriname, it was King William III who abolished slavery. It's good that his great-great-grandchild also apologizes. The apology is a step towards recognition of the suffering inflicted on our forefathers and it opens up the way to talk in a constructive way about the past and the consequences we still see today. During more than three centuries, at least 1.2 million slaves were transported to Suriname, islands like Curaçao and St. Eustatius and Indonesia. The slave trade with the West Atlantic alone was worth 45 billion euros a year in today's money, according to Matthias von Rossum, a historian. The Dutch were one of the bigger uh, slave trading nations. It's taken a long time in Dutch society uh, to come to grips to this, uh, with this uh, history and its legacies. And I think this is still an ongoing process. Dutch society has for a very long time had a a very positive self-image. Dutch history was seen as, a, as the hallmark of tolerance and the hallmark of the, the birth ground of democracy. Um, and there's for a long time been a, a disassociation between the history of colonialism and the history of slavery, which was seen as something not happening here in the Netherlands, but happening overseas. Uh, and it was disassociated from the history of the Netherlands itself. The Dutch government has promised 200 million euros to raise awareness about this dark page in the Netherlands' history. For Erwin, the king's apology is just another step on a long road ahead. Now that the Netherlands has acknowledged and has apologized, it's opened up the road to have an open dialogue with each other. It's about the need to talk about the past, the disadvantages, but also the pain so many still feel about that past. Fernand Van Tetz, DW, The Netherlands. From Europe's shameful past to our future security now, NATO leaders meet in the Lithuanian capital Vilnius next week, with Sweden's membership bid hanging in the balance. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has again reiterated his opposition to Stockholm's bid just days before the summit. Erdogan was outraged at the burning of a Koran outside a Stockholm mosque last month. 
And as Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, the Turkish leader is emboldened by his May election victory, though Washington may hold the key to resolving the impasse. The public burning of a Koran by protesters outside a Stockholm mosque last week is the latest obstacle to Sweden's NATO bid. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's currently blocking Stockholm's membership aspiration, condemned the Koran burning. Turkey will not bow down to a policy of provocation or threat. We will teach the arrogant Western people that it is not freedom of expression to insult the sacred values of Muslims. Erdogan followed up his condemnation by reiterating his opposition to Sweden's NATO bid. Erdogan's May election victory was on a platform of standing up to Turkey's Western allies, which will likely harden his negotiating stance with his NATO partners. Asla Aydentashbash is with the Brookings Institution in Washington. We are likely to see more of the same. President Erdogan, perhaps even emboldened by the vote, having five years of no elections, then possibly, you know, the price uh, going up in terms of Turkey ratifying Sweden NATO membership. Erdogan is calling on Stockholm to ban public displays of support for the Kurdish separatist group, the PKK. The group has waged an insurgency against Turkey for four decades and is designated by both the United States and the European Union as a terrorist organization. Ankara also wants Sweden to extradite its members to Turkey. Sweden's chief negotiator, Oskar Stenström insists they've now met Ankara's security demands. Sweden is no safe haven for terrorism. We are no safe haven for, for PKK. We have stepped up our cooperation between our police agencies, the police and the security service, together with the, with the Turkish counterpart, to be much more effective. But Erdogan this month dismissed such claims as unserious. Turkey's aging fleet of American-made F-16 fighter jets could be key to resolving the impasse. Ankara wants Washington to approve the sale of new F-16 fighter jets and modernization kits. Hussein Baja is the head of the Foreign Policy Institute, an Ankara-based research organization. At the end of the day, probably there will be a common understanding that America will provide F-16 modernization process as well as new F-16s. And I do not think that Turkey will be willing to stop the NATO's enlargement process. But at the moment, the more Swedish membership is postponed, the better for Russia. President Biden is now voicing support for the Turkish fighter sale. But there could be other obstacles. Erdogan is looking for an invitation to Washington as the price for lifting his veto on Sweden's NATO membership bid, claims international relations professor Serhat Guvenc at Istanbul's Karahas University. Erdogan has been in power for more than 20 years and Biden is the only US president who has refused to meet him in an official capacity, either in the U.S. capital or in the Turkish capital. So probably one of the priorities of Erdogan will be to put an end to this isolation or exclusion from Washington, D.C.
Biden is a critic of Erdogan's human rights record. But Ankara's backing of Sweden's NATO bid would also likely open the door to Stockholm's other remaining opponent, Hungary. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, a close ally of Erdogan, underlined the importance of Turkey's stance. Erdogan likes to broker deals face-to-face with fellow world leaders in the blaze of the world's media. So any breakthrough is unlikely until the NATO summit itself, with negotiations likely to go down to the wire, and Sweden facing a nervous wait. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. There's a Nordic connection to our next story too. The tiny Orkney Islands off the coast of mainland Scotland made international news this week when one of its politicians called for a reconnection with the island's Norwegian roots. Orkney was under Norway's control until 1472, when the islands were given to Scotland as part of a royal dowry. Council leader James Stockan said local lawmakers are so disillusioned with how Orkney is being neglected by London and Edinburgh that they're seeking other governance options. On Tuesday, the council voted to explore other ways the islands could be run, including through their Nordic connections. While the idea has gone down well with some, other residents have labelled the idea a bizarre fantasy that could have unintended curses. For more, I spoke to the man behind the plan, James Stocken, and asked why he thought the status quo is not working. On a funding level against other parts of Scotland, we are considerably behind where they are. Per head, the Shetland people, they had £350 per person more than us, and the Western Isles have £700 per person more than we get in Orkney. Well, that's really interesting. How come you get so much less than the other islands? We've had population growth in Orkney because we have been developing renewables, marine renewables, and we sit with Scarpaflow, which is the largest natural harbour in the Northern Hemisphere, looking for investment and that huge potential. So our population has been rising and all the rest of the Scottish islands' population has been decreasing. Okay, so in some way you've been a victim of your own success. But I just wonder what is the financial impact of this neglect that you claim from Edinburgh and London? At the moment, we are running our revenue budget for services using 15% of our reserves. That is unsustainable. And unless things change, we can't make up the deficit that central government doesn't give us. We in the council are looking to the future. We are seeing where our funding is going to dry up. We are seeing that the opportunities that we are developing won't happen unless we get real investment from, from the country or from, you know, or from others. If we don't change the governments and we don't get our equitable settlement that the other islands around us, Shetland and the Western Isle groups are getting, we will have severe challenge to public services and we will not be able to have anything to invest in our future options. And why do you think the island's historic links to Norway could be the answer? We're a very different people in Orkney. Our culture's different. We don't, we don't politics in the same way that they're done across the United Kingdom. We have a far more Nordic approach, which is that 
consensual politics where we all have something to contribute and then we look for a consensus rather than do it by strong divided lines and a kind of battle to get to the other end of that. And how do you go about building those links between Orkney and Norway, for example, without annoying the UK or Scottish governments? We have so many cultural links with Norway. Our challenge is, you know, we have to work through the Foreign and Commonwealth Office from the from the Kingdom. And I'm not trying to cross lines or cause problems, but I will be engaging with the UK government to say, where do these conversations start? Because we could be a benefit to everybody. Orkney's always had a very outward-looking view of the world. We want to serve the world and we want to connect with the world. Now, the other example that you have given is the possibility of running Orkney a bit like Jersey or Guernsey. These are the Channel Islands, which are owned by the British Crown, but don't make up part of the UK. Why would that be better? Similar to the Isle of Man also, because they have their own taxation system, but they have the tie back to the United Kingdom. Again, we may even have a different option, you know, within the United Kingdom. We're not excluding anything. But what we do want to do is absolutely secure the potential the islands have and the contribution, you know, we can make to the, to the global economy. But at the same time, these forms of government have been in place for hundreds of years. Why do you think you can make a major change like this so easily in the modern age? Well, history is always an evolving thing. And if nobody starts with an idea or with a, or with a sense of a purpose for the future, things will always stay the same. But it must be remembered the Orkney Islands had the strongest vote for the Union when Scotland had the, the referendum to separate, but we also had the strongest vote to remain part of Europe in the whole of the United Kingdom. And, and I do think that we need to take our culture and we need to think, where do we best serve? And I can see nothing wrong with actually pushing and asking these questions. Orkney Council leader James Stocken there. Still to come, the weightlifters getting ripped for gold at the Paris Olympics and why Russell Crowe was in a Czech spa town this week. Don't forget DW reports on all the major events across Europe every week. And if you'd like to stay up to date, you can check out our website, dw.com, or the DW Europe social media pages. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. Next summer's Paris Olympics still seem far away for us, but for athletes, the games are always top of their minds. As soon as one gets over, preparation gets underway for the next. For weightlifting, one of the oldest Olympic sports, that build-up is heightened as the qualification events for Paris are underway. Some of the world's top athletes battle it out recently in Cuba to get the points they need to finish in the top 10 world rankings in order to qualify for the Games. 
Inside Europe's Ashish Sharma was in the capital, Havana, to see how European athletes are faring. The popularity of weightlifting is very high here in Cuba. I've come to a park right in front of the beach where, for the first time ever, the Cuban Federation is putting on an exhibition of open-air weightlifting. But how popular is this sport in European countries? Uh, my name's Stuart Martin. I'm head of performance for British Weightlifting. We are probably in that group of uh, emerging sports that are improving on a regular basis. Obviously Emily Campbell won our first women's medal uh, at Tokyo uh, just a couple of years ago. So we're, we're growing all the time, we're, we're making good progress, we've got a great crop of youngsters coming through. When a sport doesn't, I suppose, get as much attention media-wise and coverage-wise, funding can become a problem. Does weightlifting suffer from that in any way? Uh, yes, it's difficult. When I started this role in 2016 we had about £400,000 for a four-year period, so £100,000 a year. Today we're, we're up more close to the, the three million mark across our Sport England and UK Sport investments. Well, this is Havana's Pub Expo Arena, where the first Grand Prix Olympic qualifying event is taking place. And as Stuart from UK Weightlifting just told me, the key to the growth of any sport is having successful athletes. But how does that work for the host country? Bernadine King-Matam is one of France's most experienced Olympians, having participated in the London, Rio and Tokyo Olympics. At the age of 33, he's here in Havana, fighting to overcome serious injuries to see if he can qualify for Paris to fulfil an unimagined dream of taking part in an Olympics in his own home city. Uh, what it means is a very hard sport, you know, and it's it's very, very complicated to have uh, the children to, to make like weightlifting, but I think just after the Olympic Games in Paris, we can have a lot of people, a lot of children to, yes, yes, to, uh, to practice uh, the weightlifting, uh, because I think in the Olympic Games, we can, we can, we, we can get uh, a good result. So we hope that. A beaming smile spreads across the face of Solfrid Kawanda as the Norwegian national anthem blasts out after she took a gold medal in a weight category. In her stellar career at the age of 24, she has already won World and European Championship golds, but has never taken part in an Olympics. Well, in my country, weightlifting is a very small sport. Um, I get more recognition like outside of Norway, as long as like I can inspire like a few people with my story uh, and my performance, you know, being a badass woman, lifting weights, winning gold, <laughs> coming from Norway, that's, that's enough for me. But what about funding? Because obviously sports that don't get that media recognition tend to miss out. Uh, we have like our national uh, Olympic committee, they give funding and we have like uh, in our region where I live, we have some funding. You know, I can't live out of it. Uh, I don't have like big uh, sponsors. It is like a mental, you know, burden for me because I never know what the next thing is, you know. Well, yeah. let's not let's not end on a sad note, but on a cheerful note. You're a gold medal winner. Yeah. Paris is round the corner. Yes. How much is it a dream? I can't put to words uh, what it would mean to me to lift on an Olympic stage. Like I haven't had like parents follow me to sports, and I've like always like have this feeling that that's something that's 
not in the books for me, you know. I have been feeling, you know, alone most of my, you know, uh, childhood, uh, my upbringing and everything. And, you know, finding this sport, like, has, like, really felt that, like, I belong somewhere and I can accomplish something great, you know, winning today is something really huge for me like um, it means a lot weightlifting is one of the oldest sports and was included in the inaugural modern olympics which were held in athens in 1896 but its position within the olympic community is in constant transition does the sport attract enough young people can it generate enough sponsors to host high-level events in the Tokyo Olympics, the International Olympic Committee showed its affection for urban sports by introducing skateboarding, surfing and 3 by 3 basketball. Should weightlifting lose its status, then its four-year cyclical revenue from the Olympics of around $20 million will be lost and put the future of this sport in serious jeopardy. Ashish Sharma, DW, Havana. Finally this week, after a difficult period blighted by the COVID pandemic and the effects of Russia's war against Ukraine, cultural life in Europe is beginning to return to normal. For the Czech Republic, that means the Karla Vivari International Film Festival, the most prestigious and exciting in Central and Eastern Europe. Providing the stardust at this year's event are Hollywood A-listers Russell Crowe, Ewan McGregor and Alicia Vikander. Rob Cameron is in the spa town to appraise the fascinating films and supporting events jostling for attention. A hero's welcome for the Kiwi-born Australian actor and director Russell Crowe in the Grand Hall of Calavivari's Hotel Termal. This was his first visit to the festival, a 10-day jamboree of fun and schmoozing and cinematic excellence beneath the palm fronds of the notable West Bohemian spa town, and he was clearly a fan. I've been to so many film festivals around the world that are completely disorganised and absolutely hellscapes. And this festival, it runs like clockwork, everything's on time and it's right, and I deeply appreciate that. <laughs> Crow was in town to pick up a coveted Crystal Globe Award for outstanding artistic contribution to world cinema, as well as introducing a special 20th anniversary screening of Peter Weir's sublime swashbuckling adventure film Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which won two Oscar nominations and earned Crow a Golden Globe nomination for his portrayal of Captain Aubrey. Well, then, there's not a moment to lose. Crowe said the film was earning a new legion of fans and explained why. This is a poem. It's an essay about life on board a ship like that at this time. You know, this is about the gallantry between men who understand that authority and order is required for everybody's safety. Why are so many 30-somethings getting into the movie Master and Commander. And that person, that journalist's take on it was that this movie is all about masculinity. And that audience is male and female, but the movie is all about masculinity. And it's all about what men can achieve when they work together. And what it doesn't have is toxic masculinity. It has a pure form of masculinity. And that's what people are responding to. And I just want to wish for you 
for the next couple of hours. Bon voyage. Russell Crowe and his band also played to a rapturous crowd in front of the Termal, following the British band Morchiba. Fans were also lining up to see Ewan McGregor and his daughter Clara, who wrote the script for their acclaimed road movie, You Sing Loud, I Sing Louder. The festival's longtime executive director, Krzysztof Mucha, told me after a difficult few years, especially the challenges posed by COVID for an intimate film festival such as Kalavivari, the event was now back in full swing. Yes, pretty much, I have to say. I think we were lucky that uh, even during the COVID period, we were able to do the project which we called Tadivari, which was a, a special project for that year. And then in 2021, we were able to make the, fe- the festival physical. And But it's uh, I can feel it. I can feel it also from our communication with the people in the United States that the COVID is over. And uh, also the, the war in Ukraine, unfortunately, is still not over. But uh, people, they are not afraid to travel with what affected the festival last year. Hi. Thank you for taking the time to do this interview. No, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Must feel great to be back on... An annual highlight of Kalavivari is the quirky trailer released each year and featuring the stars of festivals gone by. The current one stars none other than Johnny Depp. After Russell Crowe wowed the crowds this year, it's safe to assume everyone is hoping he makes one too. Not Jack Sparrow, but presumably with a nautical theme. Literally everyone who goes gets an award. How come you didn't? Did I know? I don't think you did. No? Um, I mean, just... Yeah... For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Carlo Vivari. And a reminder to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode of Inside Europe. Also, give us a positive review as they help other people to find us. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Gerd Georgi. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.